Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back to our wonderful guests. Uh, this week, we are talking about is... Are we seeing the end of physiotherapy as we know it? Uh, my guest today is Carolyn Van Dyke, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm really interested to dive into this conver you know into this conversation. I wonder you know if some people might find it shocking that we're saying like the end of physiotherapy as we as we know it. But uh, of course, we're going to dive and untangle this a little bit deeper. But I'm excited to actually talk about where physiotherapy is going. Right. Excellent. Um, and, and just so everyone's clear, I didn't create that kind of slogan. It's actually the name of a book written by Dr. David Nichols. So uh, we're going to unpack that a little bit. And I find, found his lecture to be very fascinating. So Absolutely. And I was actually listening to the video link that you sent mm-hmm. me um, of his talk. So just to kind of gain some additional uh, background for, for myself. And yeah, it's definitely a very interesting uh, chat and seems really appropriate with, you know, the pandemic throwing us for uh, a major kind of loop in in respect to how we as physiotherapists deliver care. So um, I guess the first place we should really start is just building a little context about learning who you are. So tell us a little bit about you. Thank you, Madeline. All right. Well, I'm a physiotherapist. I've been a physiotherapist since uh, 1987. So that was 33 years ago. I can't believe I've been practicing that long. Um, I graduated from McMaster and my career has really taking, taken me through um, a few different avenues. So I started really as an orthopedic therapist and I'm going to just go very quickly through who I, because we're going to talk about mentorship a little bit later and, and I want to acknowledge who my mentors were. So certainly in my orthopedic component of my career, which is probably the first 10 or 15 years, which I dedicated to low back pain and, and neck pain and just general orthopedics. I would say Phil Birchall was my mentor and he was an instructor with the McKenzie Institute and he really challenged me and, and encouraged me and he was a fabulous instructor. And so I credentialed in the McKenzie system in 1999 and that formed really the basis of my orthopedic approach. And I'm still really thankful for that today. It really has grounded me in a very um, logical kind of framework to address spinal pain. And of course, many of you know that I'm a pelvic health physiotherapist. I kind of dove into that world, no pun intended, in the early 2000s. And as many of us um, took up pelvic health physio, it was because we had our own issues, right? And so like many of us, I struggled with my own incontinence issues at the age of 35 after three beautiful children. And um, that's really what brought me into that field. And, And I practiced in the field of pelvic health and orthopedics for another 10 years. And it was 2010, and so I, I should acknowledge my mentor in that area, which was Marie-Josée Lord. So Marie-Josée Lord is a fabulous instructor in Quebec who really encouraged me and mentored me in those early days, and I can't thank her enough for the work that she has done. 
And then it was 2008 when I first took my, my first pain course, and it was with Debbie Patterson. And, and again, I need to really acknowledge Debbie Patterson. She's been a fabulous influence um, on my career and on my life. She's a fabulous friend at this point, and I really appreciate all that she has done. She was actually one of the founding uh, five physios who started the pain science division. So you can kind of see that my career has taken me through a couple of different pathways, orthopedics, pelvic health, uh, pain science. In 2010, um, Nellie Fagani and I started Pelvic Health Solutions because there was this real need in Ontario uh, where only 10 years ago, there was a handful of us practicing pelvic health to really develop skills um, in the particularly the Ontario community is where we started, but that really has grown nationally. So that was a lot of fun and, and Nellie and I really enjoyed working together. I sold that business uh, last year and really probably the biggest catapult for that for me was this big passion or heart that I have for our profession to really start. Like I looked back to my career and I thought, you know, I've, I've been so blessed to have a strong orthopedic career, a strong pelvic health career, and I've been working on my pain science career over the last sort of 12 years. And I'm certainly, you know, not an expert in any of those areas, but I've developed expertise. And, you know, probably the biggest gift, I'm going to talk about one more um, mentor for me, and that was my dad, actually. So my dad was a high school chemistry teacher, and he was my high school chemistry teacher. So just imagine being 16, 17, 18, and taking grade 12 and 13 chemistry from your father. That must have been very interesting. It I was. Mean, pro, pros and cons. Pros right. and cons. Right, right. He was a very... Um, uh, he was really well liked, but more among the students that were really good students. He was a tough teacher, right? And so got a bit of toughness, I think, from him. But what I also got from him was a lot of curiosity. So he taught by asking questions, right? And, and so what I really learned was to ask questions and to really kind of look at material critically and say, well, how does this all fit together? How, you know, and, and so... I'm here today, 33 years later, with a passion for musculoskeletal health, with a passion for pain science, and with a passion for pelvic health, and looking at how all of those fit together. The other little piece yet is that I've been quite involved in research, and that has been just a fabulous experience from a clinical perspective. So I'm very much a clinician, an educator. Um, my research experience, again, I need to... to um, hold up Dr. Sinead DeFore um, as a, a great collaborator in our musculoskeletal sort of low back pain, pelvic girdle pain, pelvic health research. Um, Judith Thompson who and Dr. Ben Wand, who I've done some research with, with regards to sensory motor awareness in the pelvic floor. And that's, we're just doing those studies now, which is really fascinating. And Linda McLean, Dr. Linda McLean, also an excellent mentor for me in the incontinence world and a great collaborator on, on different uh, research papers as well. So that's kind of my background, where I came from. That's great. And, and thank you, you know, for highlighting some of the individuals who have spoken um, and informed your passage in your career, because um, I think that could be really helpful as well for, uh, you know, physios who are looking to get into this realm to kind of be like, okay, well, you know, Carolyn's, you know, really great at this. And like, I wonder where she's kind of getting some of that information from. So I think, you know, from a 
clinician perspective, it's always helpful to see, you know, like who were the people that influenced, mm. you know, the, you know, cause now it's like, I look up to you and it's like, well, who did you look up to kind of thing? Right. And just yeah. following that, uh, following that pathway. So, yeah. okay. So having said, having introduced all these, uh, ideas that are, or these different realms that you've practiced in, I guess I'm going to jump my question because it seems more relevant to ask because you've been in physiotherapy for, you know, 30 years plus, um, how have you seen sort of the evolution of phys like the actual practice of physiotherapy change? Like what have you seen change in the timeline? And then this will kind of go into, you know, is physiotherapy as we know it coming to an end? Are we moving into a new era, a new phase? Right. Great question. Uh, fabulous. Let's take low back pain as an example, because again, if we kind of hone into one area, but we could take the things that I'm going to talk about really and apply it to many different areas, but let's talk about low back pain. And when I graduated in the late 80s, certainly there was the terminology around biopsychosocial was there. So I always say we've been talking the talk for a long time. We just have not been walking the walk for very long, and it's a really difficult transition. So if we look at low back pain, in the late 80s, um, manual therapy was just starting to come into its own, right? And manual therapists were starting to, um, again, you know, I can still remember very clearly in the clinic working as a young clinician thinking that the chiropractors were actually taking a lot of our low back business away, right? And, and if only we could learn to manipulate and do what the chiros were doing, then we would be, you know, sort of more highly regarded. And yet, you know, if you look at, in, and Dr. David Nichols, who we'll talk about in his lecture and book, The End of Physiotherapy, talks about, um, you know, as physiotherapists, we have been really over the last hundred years, probably the most respected profession, allied health professionals, in the rehab sort of field. But certainly I remember in the early 90s, this kind of fear, maybe that's too strong a word, but the sense that chiropractors were really kind of zoning in on what we were kind of known to do from a rehab perspective with low back pain. And it was all about manipulation. And, and we certainly, I think, and again, this is just my opinion and my view, but I think we moved into that manipulation space to compete. They had the doctor title. Um, they had, you know, certainly a certain amount of recognition amongst patients because of that. And so it started very much with manual therapy, right, and, and manipulation. And I did my McKenzie systems. I went right through to manipulation as well. And so I was rostered to manipulate. And um, for me, it really was kind of the early 2000s where we started to look a little bit more at sort of pelvic health, and that was starting to become a bit more prevalent. And we started to see this connection between pelvic health and low back pain, but it wouldn't be for a long time until we really started to kind of solidify that a little bit more. Um, really, in the last five years, we had this very strong sense that there's a strong correlation between low back pain and pelvic health, of course. Um, and so we started to, I mean, core strengthening was a big, big component and still is in a lot of, I mean, I still see research coming out around core strengthening. And so it was very sort of tissue-based, whether it was actually fixing the tissues, manipulating the tissues, or strengthening the tissues. That's really where we've come from, right? And it wasn't really until probably the last 15 or 20 years where we started to look at pain science and the work of David Butler, Lauren Mosley, 
uh, Joe Nish are some of my favorite researchers as well to very much look up to and look at what they're doing, Peter O'Sullivan. And there's been this shift in practice from a sort of a biomedical, biomechanical approach to a biopsychosocial. But that has been really, really challenging. It's hard, right? Like, let's just acknowledge that it is a really difficult shift to make. Even though the research has been calling for us to do that for 30 years, you know, for me, it's been this gradual progression. And, you know, I, I kind of, I think I stumbled on it a little bit because I went into pelvic health. And if you treat pelvic health, you know that almost every pelvic pain condition is highly correlated with central sensitization. You really can't treat pelvic health and not dig into that area a little bit more. And it fascinated me, right? And so the research now is calling for us in low back pain to have a very sort of whole person approach, more of a lifestyle approach, a biopsychosocial approach. We can call it different things, psychologically informed approach. But you know what? We're still being trained mechanically, like almost overly trained mechanically. We need to understand that it's a biopsychosocial approach. So don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. But most physios are still quite mired in the biomechanical sort of piece. Yeah. And, I, and I'm reflecting on, you know, my practice. I, I became a physio in 2012 and then entered pelvic health in 2014. And you're right. The pain science piece, like if it wasn't for the way you and Nellie were teaching, like that wasn't something that was even, you know, like on my radar because as a new graduate, like, you know, and I understand in school, we have to kind of learn the body and the anatomy and like how, you know, from a biomedical perspective, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of emphasis to then go on and do these other things. So you come out of school and you're like, okay, I need to learn how to better treat the shoulder. So I'm going to take some manual therapy courses. Um, maybe I'll take a taping course and, um, you know, uh, mobilization with movement or or something where I am doing something to someone yeah. to get them better. Right. right? And, right. and so we see that still is a highly, this is where the money is going. This is where the students mm-hmm. are spending their money to gain expert, sort of more knowledge, expertise, and feeling like okay, I have to do these extra things in order to help my patient get better. Right. We're very much fixers, aren't we? I mean, we, we, I think we get into physiotherapy with that mentality. I certainly did become a physiotherapist ever thinking for a million years that I would be doing internal exams. Like I can still remember my first course with Marie-Jose Lord got to Women's Health College Hospital in the early 2000s and went, we're doing what? To each other? pardon me, right? It was in a little, little fine print on the bottom of the pamphlet and I hadn't read it, you know? Um, And so, yeah, sometimes we get into our profession not really understanding the scope of our profession. But, you know, that shouldn't be happening anymore. And unfortunately, I think it still is. I think we still very much get into physiotherapy, and and I'm going to use David Nichols' analogy here, that we have had this paradigm of a body as a machine type of approach. And that actually, you know, that paradigm, he says, got us where we've got to in the last 100 years. But he said, if we don't change that paradigm, it will also be our demise. Now, those are pretty strong words. 
But what we know is that pain is not just a physical experience, right? Absolutely. That's a problem. So, you know, Madeline, if I had to ask you, for example, if you reflect on your clinical practice, what percentage of your patients currently do you treat that have persistent pain versus acute pain? What would you say? Uh, So I I still am treating um, a mix uh, Mm -hmm. orthopedic Mm -hmm. pelvic Mm -hmm. health. Um, I would say that my mostly... it's hard to say because some, some weeks I'm like, whoa, it's been really heavy in that persisting, persisting pain. Um, whereas other weeks I'm like, I don't see that, um, as often. Um, but I'm, I'm going to say it can plus or minus 10% be 50, 50, 50, 50. Okay. Yeah. So if you think about that, the way I like to look at it then is 50% of your, of your patients have persistent pain, right? Yes. Then 50% of your time resources, education dollars, time spent spent reading research should be spent on the psychosocial elements, right? And yet we spent almost 80 or 90% of our dollars, our time, our energy on the tissue, the bio component, right? Where what we know about persistent pain is that the tissues may be relevant, so we can't ignore them, we have to assess them, and that's very, very important. But what we know is those who go on to have persistent pain, if we look at Hashmi's research in 2013, for example, um, and many other studies have shown that the people who go on to have persistent pain, their limbic system is lighting up in acute pain instead of their sensory motor areas. So right from the beginning, they are responding to pain in a different way, and they're setting up their nervous system to actually, they're not setting it up. That's how their nervous system is responding, right? It's not intentional. Um, And so just by nature of having 50% of your caseload, 50% of your courses, resource, energy, time should be spent on developing that psychosocial component. And we don't do that, right? I I, I would certainly agree in terms of the courses, in terms of time, time spent, um, because of course some I'm like, take a few pregnancy, you know, courses. And of course, um, you know, when I listened to a talk from Sinead, uh, Dufour about, you know, pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy and just seeing that also from a very biopsychosocial model. Um, but you know, since doing level three, um, you know, when you taught it from that moment on, um, I would say most of my, time reading and listening to audiobooks and reading research has been somehow pain-based or psychologically based. Um, like I got into Bessel van der Klok's, like the body mm. keeps the score and looking at that piece. Um, yeah. A lot of uh, David Butler, um, Laura Mosley, I just picked up Painful Yarns because I want to read through that. Yeah. Um, and so all the resources that you've given, like I just happen to be that neuroscience-y kind of geek and I just love reading about how all that stuff works. And, and um, but I feel like having that knowledge, but then being able to translate it into like, I'm so much better than when I was mm-hmm. and when I first started, but I'm seeing the need now for things like motivational interviewing skills and, you know, CBT type of skills. It's like, I have this, I have all this information. I'm getting so much better at explaining it. 
Um, but then it's that, like, how do we um, create the applications, right. right? Like, how do we take clients through different exercises in that particular, uh, in that particular uh, lens? So mm -hmm. that's definitely going to be this year's focus yeah. for sure. Well, good for you. Because I think that, you know, if so level three, for those of you who are listening, who don't know what that is, that's really the public health solutions sort of um, uh, course where we look at central pain mechanisms and we develop a system around that. Um, and so in the reframe rehab system, that's called biopsychosocial reframed. And I would still say, Madeline, that particularly in level three, because it's a mandatory course in the system, that probably a third of the physios who take that are like you. They're neuroscientists and they're, they're fired up and they're excited and they see the broader perspective and they're really excited. A third go, yeah, it's interesting. And they pick one or two pieces out and put a little bit of that into their practice, still focusing more on the tissues. And then a third go, whoa, whoa, that was, where did that come from? And that does not jive with what I understand about the body as a machine. And, yeah. and, I, and I'm not ready for that, right? It's not in their space of possibility yet. So I would say that for most, because I've been teaching that course probably for seven or eight years now. Um, Sandy Hilton and I taught it together originally back in sort of 2010, 2011, and then, and then we kind of did our own thing around 2012, 2013. And um, I would say that the majority of patients who took it, patients, clinicians who took it, um, you know, probably five, six, seven years ago, um, first of all, it's changed completely because there's so much research that has changed. And secondly, I think we're just more succinct now in giving people skills and a framework. Whereas almost, I think in the early days, we were just like, here, try this, like, try this, try that, try this, try that. And now we're like, okay, we've been like, I've been doing this for 12 years now, really having a biopsychosocial informed practice. And I've gotten better at it. I certainly have developed some expertise around it. I would not call myself an expert, right? And I think this is going to tie into one of the questions I have is like, why are we as physios so generally uncomfortable with this shift into biopsychosocial? And I think to, to you know, for myself, uh, a big driving force for me reading more and wanting to learn more and get more effective is due to my own personal frustration, like working with um, individuals with persisting pain, because, you know, the, the old body as a machine stuff doesn't work. Right. right? It, right. It, and so um, I think people are uncomfortable because we don't, or myself, I guess yeah. I'll speak for myself is because, you know, I don't know what the next, you know, like, it's always like, okay, well, if this isn't working, how do I, how do I apply this? How do I do this better? And in the process of, you know, not getting it, I guess, quote unquote, um, picking the right thing. It's like, okay, well, what's, what's the next piece here that I'm, that I'm missing that I need to bring in to be more effective, um, both in my explanation to the, to the clients. Cause right. They come in with their expectations mm -hmm. of, well, you're going to fix me, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're the fifth person physio I'm seeing, you know, um, you're going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to work on that tissue, right? Cause you know, my tissue's tight and I, I need to stretch it out. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, you're, you're managing their expectations and you're trying to explain. And, it, and so I think it's challenging because it forces us as clinicians to get really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. And being uncomfortable is uncomfortable and we don't yeah. want to be uncomfortable. 
So the challenge is, and that's an acceptance and commitment therapy. <laughs> can, can you actually sit in your discomfort? Can you allow the magic to happen? Because the magic happens within the patient, not with, with us, right? Hmm. And that's not how we're trained. We're trained, these are magic fingers, and I can do magic with these fingers, right? And there are some very skilled manual therapists who have lovely hands and can do amazing, lovely feeling things with their hands. And that's great. It's the context and the story that goes behind it that probably needs to change, right? It, there's not a bunch of dysfunctions that we're trying to fix. Tissues aren't broken. Tissues aren't fragile. You know, I, I love Sandy Hilton's synopsis of persistent pain. She says, first of all, things are sensitized. So we have to measure that, you know, and how many of us are consistently measuring sensitization using the central sensitization inventory with every patient is your patient sensitized or things are tight or things are weak. Right. And if they're sensitized, we need to desensitize them. If they're tight, we should stretch them. And maybe if they're tight because the sensory motor cortex maps have changed and that is a new default strategy, maybe we need to address the nervous system and how it's holding tension. That looks very different than stretching muscles, right? How many of your patients come in and say, oh, my hamstrings are so tight and I stretch and I stretch and I stretch and they don't get any looser, right? That is a top-down, centrally driven sort of baseline of tension that your sensory motor cortex is controlling, which is the ultimate controller anyway, right? And so it's a matter of sort of taking a step back and taking a broader approach at that point. So if we kind of think things are, things are sensitized, things are tight, things are weak, you know, tissues heal. And the biomechanical dysfunctions that we have created to explain persistent pain don't make sense. They don't add up. And that's what gets us into trouble. And that's what gets our patients into trouble, right? Because they have this story now, you know, around what the problem is. And it's tissue based. And unless we fix the tissues, it's never going to get better. Well, how many physios can you see or chiros or physicians or injections or whatever it is that you're getting to fix those tissues? Yeah. So my question, I guess I have a, a, you know, how do you sort of see, you know, cause there's like, of course there's tons and tons of manual therapy approaches. There's dry needling, there's taping, there's laser, there's all these different types of modalities. Um, you know, do we throw all of that out or is it that we need to start looking at the things that we're doing um, from a different perspective mm. and the narrative that we're giving our clients as to like what it's actually doing. Mm -hmm. That's a great question, Madeline. And so I guess two things, one is context or, or narrative, which I love the way you said that and, and how we explain why something works, I think is really important. And if we just talk about it's calming the central nervous system down, it's allowing you to now move again in, in a little bit more of a free way versus this is stuck, I have to fix it, it's in the wrong place, it's whatever, right? So that's a different kind of narrative, that's important. I think the other really, really important piece around our manual therapy, dry needling skills, whatever skills are in your toolbox at this point, is around self-efficacy and empowerment. So mm -hmm. what we know in persistent pain is that low self-efficacy, low confidence that you can continue to live your life, both at work, at home, and activities of daily living, despite the pain, 
if you, so there's a scale for that. It's called the PSEQ2, right? Pain Self-Efficacy Questionnaire 2, two questions. And if they score less than eight out of 12, 12 is the max score that you can get on that questionnaire, they have low self-efficacy. And the research actually shows that self-efficacy is one of the strongest predictors of who is going to do well and who's not going to do well, right? So if they have low self-efficacy, first of all, peer support, is really important. So again, language education, those are things that we do and empowering patients. So that's for me where the McKenzie system has come in because the McKenzie system is very empowering. What we know for low back pain, Audrey Long study that was published in Spine in 2004 showed that, you know, two thirds of people with low back pain, acute, subacute or chronic, have a mechanical preference to their movement. So they, they have a directional preference. And if you treat them in that directional preference, 94% resolve in two weeks. So first of all, always screen the tissues because even in persistent pain, there can be a mechanical component. And gosh, that's easy to correct, you know, and it's empowering. You empower the patient to correct it themselves. And that's really important for self-efficacy, right? Whereas her research showed if you actually gave patients exercises in the opposite direction to their directional preference, only 24% got better. And if you gave them general range of motion exercises and strengthening exercises, only 42 or 44% got better. So there's some significant benefit to looking for directional preference. That's the bio piece, right? But then if you're going to use whatever tool in your toolkit, especially when they have low self-efficacy, your first job is to do everything you can to build their self-efficacy which means giving them experiences of change in the clinic, which is empowering them to make the change, not you to make the change. And so that's where I sometimes think our manual therapy or tools can get us into a bit of trouble. Thank you for, for that clarification. Um, and I think, you know, you and I were talking about that whole idea of doing something versus giving the client permission mm. to experience and make the change, right? Is it really us doing it or are we just creating an environment and creating an experience where they're able to see that they're capable of imposing this, uh, this change? Um, I guess I'm curious as to, do you think that, you know, in light of this COVID thing and, mm -hmm. and moving into tele-rehab, do you think that this has maybe, um, What's the, there's a word I'm looking for, but essentially sped up this mm. need for paradigm shift because right. all those people who rely heavily in their practice on their tools um, were no longer able to use them. Right, right. So I think the pandemic certainly has created an environment, like it may have sped up that process, as you say, significantly. So I love Bolato's work. Bolato is a neuroscientist. He's a UK uh, neuroscientist. His name is spelled B-E-A-U and then Lotto, L-O-T-T-O. And he wrote a book called Deviate. So he looks at the neuroscience of change. How do we change, right? And so change can only happen one step at a time. When you see someone being really creative, you think, wow, that's really amazing. They're linking these two abstract concepts together. And so that's creative in your mind because that's not within your space of possibility, right? But it's not necessarily creative in my mind because it's just the next logical step for me at this point, right? So when it came to the pandemic, those who already were on this pathway of a biopsychosocial framework actually made, took that next step quite easily. 
And those who were really still stuck in a body as machine, biomechanical type of approach, ooh, that was hard. And, and it was going to be hard. There was no easy process because you, you can't teleport yourself to the other side of the room. You can't teleport yourself into a biopsychosocial framework. It's taken me 12 years of doing what you're doing right now, Madeline, and, and reading books and being curious and asking questions and taking more courses that look at the neuroscience component and psychosocial factors. And, and I'm still learning, right? It's, it's such a process, right? And, you know, I'm, I've been practicing for 33 years. It's going to take another 15 or 20 years before I feel like maybe I'm really good at this stuff, right? And that's okay. That's okay. I've got lots of time yet. Um, but um, so, yeah, I think my heart goes out to those therapists who really struggled with the transition to telehealth. And I really want the message to be, it's not what you are doing wrong. It's just your current paradigm. And in your current paradigm, it was too big a step. You couldn't teleport yourself into tele-rehab, right? But you either need to then say, you know, I don't think telehealth is going away. I don't know what's going to happen. Are we going to have another pandemic? Are We all know now that we can do a lot of rehab over telehealth. It gives us a lot of freedom right? I think in some ways, when it comes to some of the psychosocial stuff, this screen that's between us right now, Madeline, gives our patients a bit of security around maybe being able to have a little bit more of a difficult conversation than you're able to have in the office, especially when you think you have to also be doing manual therapy at the same time and giving them exercises. So it gives us some space to really unpack the experience of pain. Um, right? And, and the new definition, which just came out in 2020, right? So we've had a definition of pain since 1979, which has always said, right from the beginning, pain is a sensory and emotional experience, not or, and. Yep. But for the last 40 some odd years, we have, as physical rehab medicine providers, ignored that and piece, and we've treated the physical piece. And we just can't do that anymore. So the new definition says that, but then also has some provisos around pain must be attended from a biopsychosocial perspective, right? This is the International Association for the Study of Pain. And if you found yourself at the beginning of the pandemic or through the pandemic, we're still in it. If you found yourself really struggling with that transition, now is the time to actually develop a framework because if you're going to, if, if, you're, if this is not going to be the end of physiotherapy, right? If this is the dawn of a new beginning, that is better for you as a clinician, because boy, it takes the pressure off me when I don't have to fix things, right? It's my patient's job to actually figure out, and I'm their coach to help them figure out what is sensitizing them and how that's going to change. But if we have that belief that their nervous system can change again and will change again, it takes a lot of pressure off us. So it's a better profession for us. And it's better for our patients because it gives them skills that they need to get themselves back into life again. I guess, how do you see this also shift in our clientele base? Or like, how do you approach the clients who are very... Um, their expectations 
because what they know of rehab therapists is hands-on work, you know, all that kind of stuff. How do we help them also understand that a biopsychosocial is where the research is, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. they come in, like, how do we get, I guess, more from a national or, you know, how do we get more people understanding that this is where, like, what does physiotherapy have to do as a profession to help get that message out there as well? Right, right. That's a fantastic question. And I hear this all the time, Madeline. You know, my patients expect ultrasound, interferential, my hands-on traction. They expect dry needling. That, that's what. So the first thing I'm going to say is that is your confirmation bias. Mm. It is our confirmation bias as a profession that our patients expect what we are going to give them. Okay. Um, because I'm a physiotherapist. And so, you know, I've had a very interesting trajectory through my career. So my early orthopedic days were spent at CBI. And in those days at the Canadian Back Institute, we didn't have any modalities, not one, no ultrasound, no traction. It was exercise, baby. That's all we were teaching, right? And then I opened my own practice, having already spent 10 years at CBI. And we didn't own any modalities either right? I have not worked with modalities in my clinical practice. So you could say, well, patients expect ultrasound, they expect interferential. I don't know how many hundreds and thousands of patients that I've seen, and they didn't expect that, right? So, so part of that is our confirmation bias. So we have to just own mm. that, first of all, hold the mirror up and say, am I, is this my expectation or theirs, right? The second thing is, is you set the scene, so every single one of my patients, before they come to see me, fill out a detailed questionnaire that starts with, you know, thank you for, for coming to Physiotherapy Works Muskoka. Um, so happy that you're here. At Physio Works Muskoka, we take a whole person approach and pain is a sensory and emotional experience. Therefore, I'm going to ask you a series of questions that look at your physical experience of pain, but also your emotional experience of pain. If there's anything that, that I'm asking you to fill out that doesn't pertain, just leave it blank. So something like that is sort of how I start. And then I give them a whole questionnaire and I measure right off the get-go central sensitization using the CSI inventory. And then I have a sad cliffs mnemonic that Anthony Lowe helped me to create actually. So we measure stress, anxiety, depression using the DAS 21. That's sad. We use cliffs, so catastrophization. We use the pain catastrophizing scale. Low self-efficacy, we use the PSEQ2. Low positive affect, we use the PANIS, the positive effect, negative effect scale. We look at injustice using the IEQ or the injustice experience questionnaire from Nick Sullivan's group. We use, um, we measure fear using the Tampa scale of kinesiophobia. We look at shame and the lack of self-compassion using a self-compassion quiz. And then we look at sensory motor smudging using all of Ben Wan's fabulous um, work around sensory motor changes and using the Fremantle questionnaires. So every single one of my patients fills out that questionnaire. It probably takes them 20 minutes to fill out. And then we go, ah! Questionnaire fatigue, that's terrible. Your patients are not going, like, they're just going to hate it. Well, first of all, they fill out ahead of time. And so they come in knowing that we're going to have these conversations, right? They're prepped for it. And so we have the conversation. I spend an hour. There's often in an assessment that I won't get to the physical screen. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes it's just subjective history. 
And then at the end of that, I reflect back on what I heard, what I've learned, what their opportunities are for change. So I don't call them problems. I call them opportunities for change. And then I ask them to say, did I get that right? Is there anything that I missed? And the comment will almost always be, that is the most thorough assessment that I've ever received. And I feel like you understand my pain better than anyone else has ever done yet. And then we lay out the plan and it's active. I don't use passive strategies, right? I, I'm certified in acupuncture. So 2002, went to McMaster, did my acupuncture training, got my credentials in acupuncture. Haven't used it in over five years at this point, okay? I'm not against acupuncture, but for my patient population, when I have so many other strategies that I can use, it takes away their self-efficacy. So I just don't use it. Yeah, because you can't needle at home and you can't, you know, you can't ultrasound at home and, you know, a TENS unit at home, um, you know, and not to say that those things can't be helpful, but it's, again, in the context of you're saying self-efficacy. I mean, if they don't have access to that to be able to utilize it, I mean, why, why start there? Right, right, right. Right. So, so I totally... Um, I totally get that. Um, I'm going to ask the ne next question because I think it comes up often. Um, and it actually did come up in the talk uh, with David Nichols um, about how sometimes the institutionalization mm -hmm. that we're sort of stuck in, um, if physiotherapy is going to change, that means we need pioneers that are going to push boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, without getting in trouble for pushing, you know, so there's a little bit of fear about pioneering new things um, as it's centered around scope of practice. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm going to actually pull my notes out here for just a sec. Okay, yes. It's actually a brand new study that was just published in 2020 by Rika, and I have, that's why I'm going to pull my notes. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to mispronounce her name. It's Holopainen, H-O-L-O-P-A-I-N-E-N. She's a Finnish uh, Finnish physio, who's doing her PhD working in Lormer's group, I believe. And in, so she did actually a systematic review looking at physiotherapist per, um, perceptions of taking on a biopsychosocial approach and what the barriers were. And certainly institutionalization was a big barrier. So time, training, right? She says very clearly that if we are going to be successful, that mentoring is really important, which is why I started talking today about my mentors and who they were and who they continue to be. I still look up. I mean, you know, I will read every paper that Joe Nish um, publishes, right? And, and he's a, a physiotherapist in Belgium who is doing a fabulous job looking at the physiotherapist's role in central sensitization. So she looks at that. So I'd highly recommend you take a look at her paper. But what she also says, and I'm going to read just because I, it's fairly, normally my research comes rolling off, but I literally read this this weekend. Okay, so yeah, yeah. There's an urgent need to discuss the scope of practice and the role of boundaries of physiotherapists, as well as what constitutes competency in delivering biopsychosocial interventions, right? So we're at a real 
crossroads. And you're right, it's going to take some physiotherapists to push some boundaries and to, and I think there are physiotherapists who are doing that. I think Byron Jam is doing that. I think Neil Pearson is doing that. I think Joe Tata in the US is doing that. I think Jessica Drummond is doing that. Um, and those are just sort of some people off the top of my head. I believe that I'm probably doing that as well, right? Is trying to find some boundaries. Now, what's interesting, I did actually have a physio approach me about a year ago. Um, she had had a college complaint um, from treating a low back pain patient and she treated him right away with uh, using meditation for stress. She recognized that stress was playing a significant role. And when I went and I looked at sort of the college complaint and her kind of report, what she didn't do is she did not do a physical exam. She went right to treating the stress, right? And as physiotherapists, if you're going to stay within your scope, first of all, we treat pain. Now, stress may be impacting pain, but my target is pain. I'm not a psychologist. Depression may be affecting their pain, right? They're comorbid and, and fire many of the same brain areas, right? So we know that. Um, but my target is pain. But I could choose let's say, help my patients to sort of decide what might work best into their schedule, but maybe we're going to use yoga, for example, because yoga also has some significant evidence behind depression as well as pain. So do you see how it kind of influences our choice? But ultimately, I'm treating pain. So I actually wouldn't write a, a letter back to the college in her defense because I didn't feel that she took a biopsychosocial approach. She missed that bio piece. You've got to do a physical exam. You've got to rule in and rule out the tissues. Another, other physios had seen this fellow, and she figured that that was, that was done previously. doesn't matter. As a, as a professional, that is your job, right? So you have to rule in and rule out the tissues. And then if we're going to take a psychosocial approach, we better be as objective as we are physically when we measure the psychosocial distress piece. We've got to use questionnaires. We cannot guess that our patient's stressed, anxious, or depressed. We're looking for those self-report kind of pieces. And then when you're addressing those pieces within the context of treating pain, you can also remeasure, which is what, um, oh, who was the, I want to say it was Wernicke, but that's not the right. There was a study in 2012 that Paul Stratford was part of, actually, that looked at about 792 people with low back pain, looking at psychosocial distress, and did it predict outcome? And in fact, it did. The higher the depression, the higher the anxiety. At midterm, if that wasn't changing, those were the people that went on to have chronic pain or, or persistent pain at, at, at discharge. And so we have to do this serial reassessment, right? We need to measure it objectively to begin with, and then we need to reassess it. But we can address depression, anxiety, and stress through exercise, through meditation. Um, my strong belief at this point is, is that the more we profile a sensitive nervous system, the more individualized we can make our treatment plans, the better the outcomes we're going to receive. So if we think exercise, maybe a bit of acceptance, pain education, um, some cognitive behavioral kind of thing, if we just say those are the three things that everyone with persistent pain needs, we're still only going to get small to moderate size effects, which is what we see in research. If we can be more specific and profile, you know, is shame part of their sensitization? 
You know, do they lack self-compassion? Are they really hard on themselves, for example, right? Or another huge one for physiotherapists that physiotherapists still have not explored very much is sensory motor dysregulation, right? So Ben Wan's work on the Fremantle questionnaires. It's a significant component. And you can get your patients to meditate all you want. If they've got sensory motor mapping issues, they need a novel movement experience. They need to start to learn to move in non-threatening ways. So we need to be more targeted. And then I think we'll stay within scope. That was a long answer, but I hope that kind of gave you some ideas there. Yeah. And I think part of using all of those questionnaires and the way I sort of look at it is also in addition to is if I identify these other areas, then that also helps me make referrals. Mm, perfect. That's the piece. Right? Like, so, yes, yes. So, I could, and, and I guess part of the way that I sort of explain is like, look, I'm just screening for these things. Right. Um, right. Because they do impact pain or, you know, whether it's an overactive bladder or whatever yeah. the yeah. situation, whatever they're complaint is saying, okay, you know, I'm looking at these things because we know that it can impact your experience of the situation. And here's where I'm going to help. But here's these other pieces that if these don't get addressed, which I'm not the person to address Mm -hmm. them per Mm se, um, Mm -hmm. things are not going to improve. Right. Or or things may not improve in, um, the way you would like to mm-hmm. see them improve. Correct. Correct. Right. Yeah, and absolutely. then, and then it gives us a little bit of basis to mm-hmm. also like write a letter to the physician and be like, look, I did these screening questionnaires. This is coming up as like yellow red flags. Like, you know, if I can't make a referral, can you maybe perhaps like follow up on this, make, make the appropriate f- referrals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that again, taking that whole piece together, that may not Again, we're not saying we're the ones doing all of it because there's research that yoga is good for depression. Like they may need other things too, right? So, um, but we can use movement and we know that movement impacts these other distress things as well, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's helpful for people listening to this to understand like what is it that we're like targeting Mm -hmm. um, from a physiotherapy perspective, right? Right, right. Yeah, so I I think that, and thank you for saying that, because I think that is the last piece to scope, is also identifying if someone has severe depression on the depression, anxiety, stress scale, for example, and they're not moving and, and, you know, they don't have purpose in their life, there are, those are things that you can help to address. But a co-referral at the same time, if they have not had counseling, and they're willing to go down that road, might be the most appropriate thing that you can do. But you know, when, when I get physiotherapists to use the questionnaires, they're always surprised. Oh, that person was really put together. I'm shocked that actually their catastrophization was in the severe category, for example, or that their anxiety was in the severe category, right? So we just don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. And the only way to measure those factors is to use questionnaires, validated questionnaires. Amazing. I'm going to ask the next question, which is, okay, so we've talked a lot about this paradigm shift needing to change. And I'm sure, you know, again, with the pandemic, leaving a lot of uh, therapists really unsure where to go next. Um, Is there anything specific, like, is there a start point where, you know, like, where do you even begin? Great question, Madeline. 
So it's interesting. When I teach my framework course that I teach, I will always pull the clinicians on the course and say, how many of you, and, and, and I teach internationally at this point, and I would say in Canada, it may be the worst, interestingly enough. How many of you have taken a pain education course? How many of you have actually learned the pain biology and know how to teach pain biology? And I would say less than 15% of the at any given class. Now, when I teach in Australia, that looks very different. So Australians, you know, and again, probably because of the heavy influences of people like David and Lorimer, for example, um, many more, and it's integrated, I think, more into their, like into their um, bachelor's programs and master's programs as well. Um, where they are lacking or feel like they're lacking is they don't have a systematic way then or a process way to deal with, okay, so now you've educated them about pain, what do you do next, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I would say for Canadians, if they're mostly Canadians listening to this, have you done a pain education course, first and foremost? And if you have, good on you, okay? Or if you're starting to te teach people about pain, that's fantastic. The second piece is, do you have a framework? right? Do you have a framework to put pain education in? Because what happens is we talk to our patients about the pain system and how it becomes sensitive and how the alarm system becomes more sensitive. And then we treat the tissues, right? And so we don't assess and address the sensitive nervous system. We just go back to knowing what we always do and we treat the tissues. That's a real mixed message for patients. So framework is really important. And, and there's several people who are developing frameworks. So certainly um, Sandy Hilton and I have developed a framework. I teach a framework course. Baram Jam teaches a framework course. I would say David Walton and Jim Elliott, so looking at their radar plots, are also looking at creating a bit of a framework around how do we address that. So it's out there. I think that's the next step. And then the next step really is to then, kind of what we talked about at the beginning, Put your course dollars, your time, your energy into developing competency in the psychosocial framework, right? So we already have pretty good bio competencies. I would say everyone who's listening, if you've been practicing for a couple of years, your bio competencies are great. Stop chasing that next bio course, right? And develop competencies in the psychosocial realm because that, if you're treating persistent pain, that's where your skills need to lie. Yes, otherwise there will be some unnecessary frustration, you know, um, in, in, in that realm. So, right. Right. Yeah. 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 And I, and I would, and again, I think it's, it's the fear of the transition is, you know, competency is framework and, and probably mentorship, probably those, those would be the big things is like, okay, I have all these floating pieces, like I get it, you know, and even myself, like I'll go to a course and, you know, it's like, until that sometimes I have two pieces of information that are like two courses away that when they jive together, it's like yeah. light bulb. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I think certainly if, if, if mentorship is there, then that may make making those connections a little easier. Yeah. You know, the psychosocial realm, let's just go back. It's hard. It's difficult. You know, if, you, if we look at our colleagues who do psychosocial work, mental health work, so psychologists, social workers, they all have what's called supervised practice. Every single one of them has a supervisor that they go and, and uh, work on difficult cases with, that they go decompress around a difficult case, that they get some mentoring, what could I have done differently, tell, you know? And so if we're going to move into this realm, 
we have to change that process as well. And, you know, it's interesting. It's paid for, right? So I do a lot of mentoring. So a little bit of I get paid for. Most of it I do just because I'm very passionate about physiotherapists improving in this area. But, you know, it's, it's just part of the cost of doing business is that if you are going to treat persistent pain, you must take a biopsychosocial framework. That's, that's what the research says. And if you're going to take a biopsychosocial approach, you must have a mentor. That's what Rika Holopanian's, I'm sorry, I'm really doing a terrible job of her name, um, in the just meta-analysis that was just published said, we have to develop mentorship programs and we just are not there in physiotherapy. So let's talk about, okay, so we talked about um, take a pain course, get some framework piece. I want to talk about specifically reframe rehab because obviously the, you chose that title for a reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I'm wondering what you're, you know, what, what do you hope that this is going to add, that this mm -hmm. is going to bring, that this is going to turn into um, for our profession? Right. So we did, the name was, took a long time in coming and a lot of sort of looking at different names. And, and our goal really is to reframe how we do rehab, because I do not believe it's the end of physiotherapy, but we do have to make a shift in order to get there at this point. So, you know, it's interesting the the current pandemic has certainly changed the way we all do business, right? Pre-COVID at Reframe Rehab, our elevator speech would probably have been we're a live online teaching company focusing on the clinical integration of a biopsychosocial framework with ongoing mentorship. That's kind of was sort of our key pieces, right? However, in the blink of an eye, all teaching companies became live and online, right? Pretty much everyone. If you're going to survive in the teaching realm right now, everyone's live and online. So what makes us different? Well, certainly we're an international company, so I think that makes us different. We really looked for who are the clinicians internationally who have been in the trenches for the last 10 to 15 years really practicing from a biopsychosocial framework. So they're highly skilled clinical instructors, first of all, and they're 100% committed. Every single one person who's teaching for Reframe Rehab um, is 100% committed to a biopsychosocial approach. So you're not gonna get a course that's kind of wishy-washy around, well, now we're gonna treat the tissues. We are gonna look at tissue health, but from a biopsychosocial framework, right? And I think most important, we are doing what Holopainen uh, identified as a crucial aspect um, in her systematic analysis. And that is we are providing mentorship. So every class that you take, there will be ongoing, um, um, ongoing, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I've lost all Like meets, uh, chats, yeah. opportunities, yeah. gatherings, so, yeah. online <laughs> gatherings. <laughs> so ongoing opportunity to actually interact with the instructors. So we will have office hours. So that's what we're calling it. Office hours will be kind of like your, your university office hours where you could go in and talk to the prof and, and, you know, go through some difficult problems. We'll have a monthly offering of, uh, interactions with the instructors. Um, every instructor will have their own office hours. So you can go back and look at case studies, ask questions, because it's great that you learn some information on a course. But until you start to apply it in your clinical practice, and particularly with that mentoring piece with a psychosocial piece, so you'll have access to the social workers and the psychologists who are teaching CBT and acceptance and commitment therapy and motivational interviewing.
And I think the other big piece really is that our classes will all be small. Again, we're really looking for that interactive piece with the instructor. It's not going to be webinar, webinar style. It will be maximum of 24 people in a class where we really can get to know um, those folks over, over the months period. They'll all be short, short timeframes as well. So two hours, three hours max at a time, because that's about all the Zoom we can take, our brains can take for a short period of time. Right? Considering we're all on it almost like all the time, every yeah. day, it's like, it's, yeah. it, you know, it, it definitely requires a lot more energy because yeah. it's, you know, you need to be present. Um, so you're not missing things. And thank yeah. you for, for sharing that piece. Where, if people are looking um, to find out more about Reframe Rehab um, or just looking to, you know, stay in the loop, yep. where are people able to find you? Beautiful. Thank you. So reframerehab.com is our website. And so certainly check us out there. We have about 30 different course offerings, all from a biopsychosocial perspective, um, not just for physiotherapists, for occupational therapists, for psychologists. So we're really looking to bring together the rehab community from different perspectives. Um, you can find us on Instagram at Rehab, and you can also find us on Facebook. Once you take a course with us, again, not only do you have access then to your instructor's office hours indefinitely, you also can join our closed Facebook group and uh, start asking questions in a very biopsychosocially minded community. So that's really what we're striving to create. Amazing. And for anybody who's driving or is like, what's that again? Um, all the links are going to be in the show notes to make it super easy for you to um, access that information. Carolyn, I want to thank you so much for having this discussion with me today um, to, you know, highlight, I think, the shift that a lot of us are feeling is needed, um, especially in light of the uh, pandemic. It's just, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of clinician stress and anxiety around where, where do I start? Where do I, you know, where do I go with this? Um, and, and hopefully we've, um, hopefully the listeners have found this as a good start point to figure out where to start, wherever on the spectrum you happen to be with your exposure to the biopsychosocial model. Um, and of course, you know, I'm just, grateful that I had met you and got introduced to it way back when I started my pelvic health career um, because it has helped me immensely and I know will continue to help me immensely. So thank you so much. Thank you, Madeline, for having me and thank you for being so passionate about moving this forward. I think that's uh, it's a very important piece that you have embraced and I really appreciate that. Yep. And I'm looking forward to uh, taking some additional courses and get, getting a little bit of mentorship along the way. I think, um, like I said, I think that's a really a critical piece. And I feel like I'm now have enough framework where I feel more confident <laughs> to start working um, under more uh, mentorship. So uh, thank you to our listeners who have uh, stayed with us. And if you like the episode, be sure to subscribe. And if you know uh, a physio, uh, an OT, uh, social worker, anybody who you think may benefit from listening to this episode, um, please do share it with them. And I'm going to say bye for now until next time. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.